The news from Saturn, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, back from our adventure with Planetary Radio Live last week. We're also back to our regular format, and we have another great show for you. Linda Spilker is no longer the deputy project scientist for the Cassini mission at Saturn. No, she's now the project scientist, but she'll still share the latest science from that magnificent planet, its mysterious moons, and its beautiful rings. Did you hear Stephen Hawking's warning about talking to aliens? Bill Nye has a courageous response in his commentary. And Bruce Betts will help me give away a copy of The Eerie Silence. That's the terrific book about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence by Paul Davies, the one I raved about a couple of weeks ago. Bruce will also provide helpful hints for hopeful beholders of the night sky. We'll start with Emily Lakdawalla, key author of the Planetary Society blog. Emily, lots of uh, great blog entries over the last week, but a couple that we're going to pay special attention to today, beginning with something that I just found fascinating. I know we've heard from lots of listeners, and you've heard from lots of blog readers, about the hexagon on Saturn. There's one right now who's excited about the hexagon. Yeah, a lot of readers have asked me about the hexagon on Saturn. People are mystified by it. And, of course, there's an awful lot of people out there on the Internet who think that a geometrical shape must have an unnatural origin. But I can assure you that it's very natural in origin. Um, The fact that there's six sides to it is actually an accident. It could just as well have been five or seven. But it was conditions on Saturn that caused this standing wave to take a form that had six sides to it. And there is a team led by a, a student, actually, named Anna Aguiar, who simulated the sort of conditions in the laboratory that produced this funky shape to the North Pole of Saturn. And the videos really are beautiful. You you need to check them out, folks. Let's move on to the other big story this week, and that was uh, this uh, moment in time, mostly on Earth, but uh, you pointed out a, a moment that was celebrated on Mars. That's right. I got uh, somebody f- uh, tweeted me about this event that New York Times was putting together. It was actually the Lens blog of the New York Times. They asked their readers to submit photos taken at 15 o'clock Universal Time on May 2nd, um, which of course is many times of day all around the globe. It was just after dawn here in Los Angeles, and it was it was actually close to midnight in Beijing. They asked readers to submit these photos that would show how life was like across the world at this particular time of day on this particular day of the year. And I immediately thought, well, you know, why limit it to Earth? Why couldn't we try to extend this beyond Earth? And so I checked out what time that would be for Opportunity on Mars. It turned out it would be the end of Opportunity's day. So I sent an email to Jim Bell, head of the PanCam team on the rovers, and incidentally the president of the board of the Planetary Society. I showed him this blog entry that of the Lens blog in New York Times, and I said, wouldn't it be cool if Opportunity could participate? And it turns out, to make a long story short, he and the team agreed. They took a photo, they sent it back from Mars, and it was just gorgeous. That really is. And it's uh, even got a shot of uh, the sundial, uh, Bill Nye's uh, sundial. That's right, which allowed us to caption the image, two worlds, one sun, which is, of course, Lou's phrase engraved on the face of the sundial. Very cool. There's a lot of other great stuff uh, on the blog from last week, including a little story about uh, problems on Voyager 2. But you'll be tracking that and many other stories as uh, you continue to uh, maintain the uh, Planetary Society blog. Thanks again, Emily. Thank you, Matt. Emily Lakdawalla is the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope Magazine. And this program, 
where she talks about all of her recent blog entries. Don't forget to mention, Matt, I'm also a distracted mom. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. We'll be right back with Linda Spilker for a Cassini update. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy here, Vice President of the Planetary Society. And this week, I just want to draw attention to Dr. Stephen Hawking, the famous, famous guy who solved a couple of remarkable problems in astrophysics and wrote the very, very popular book, A Brief History of Time. This guy asserts that we really shouldn't be trying to find out if there's life elsewhere in the universe, at least not actively. Because if there's life elsewhere in the universe, those aliens, they're going to come here and take our resources and move on. They're going to destroy the Earth, just like in a science fiction movie. They're going to take over, take, I guess, eat people, for example, and then, and then move on. Well, this is a, a fine thing to be concerned about, especially from a science fiction standpoint. But I remind everybody that we have been letting everyone in the universe know that we're here because we've been broadcasting television and radio signals for the better part of a century. So if you're out there and you're savvy to radio and television, electromagnetic waves, you probably know there's some intelligent life, or let's say whatever humans are on the scale of intelligent lifehoodnessment, that we're already here. So if they're going to come and take over, there ain't not much we can do about it. With that said, you got to think that the distances between planets and stars present the same problems to aliens and other star systems as they present to us. So wouldn't it be exciting to receive a signal from elsewhere in the universe, verifying that there are living things someplace else who stop and think about their place in the universe just the way we do? That is a risk worth taking. I mean, Stephen Hawking, thank you very much for your insights. And we are very, very thankful that you accepted the Cosmos Award from the Planetary Society. But this concern about the aliens coming here and taking everything, it's, it's too late to worry about. That horse, as Steve Squire said, that horse is out of the barn. So everybody, uh, let's continue to broadcast on the radio. Let's continue to look for life elsewhere. And let's continue to explore our nearby solar system so that we can understand our own planet better. Thanks for listening. I got to fly Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy. Six years. That's how long the Cassini probe has been circling Saturn, exploring the great planet, its moons, and those amazing rings. Now it looks like the spacecraft will be able to continue its mission for many more years, if everything goes according to plan. This also means we'll be able to continue our periodic conversations with Linda Spilker of the Jet Propulsion Lab. Linda has spent pretty much her entire professional life at JPL, and most of that working on Cassini. We've always known her as the deputy project scientist for the mission, but professional lives evolve just as planetary systems do, and the amazing science just keeps coming. When I sat down with Linda a couple of weeks ago for this latest update, there was one story NASA wasn't quite ready to tell yet. Now it's okay for everyone to know about one more accomplishment by amateur astronomers, this time working in collaboration with the Cassini team. I spoke to Linda at JPL in a room that was right next to the lab's busy bus stop, as you'll no doubt hear a couple of times during the interview. Linda, it's been about four months since we last spoke. The mission has been as busy as ever. A lot to talk about. Thanks for coming back. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. 
Among other things, congratulations on the mission extension. We're now, what, the extended, extended mission, the solstice mission that may take you out to, what, 2017? Right, till 2017, and that will be summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And so I've had a chance to arrive and go through several seasons on Saturn. And this seven-year extension also gives us a chance to look at changes, temporal changes, both on Enceladus and Titan as well. So ergo the, uh, the name of this uh, newly extended mission. Right, the Solstice Mission. And that's not all that's happened uh, in the decision-making uh, realm of this mission. Uh, congratulations on your promotion to Project Scientist. Well, thank you very much. I've been at JPL for 33 years, and I feel like the various steps I've taken, working on Voyager as an experiment rep, and then Cassini as the deputy project scientist to finally reach the project scientist level, it's really a very wonderful experience that I'm looking forward to the next seven years. Remind us very quickly what a project scientist does. I mean, how do you spend your day? Well, project scientist's main function is to represent the science of Cassini, both within the project itself and to the outside community, and also to represent those 400 and some scientists that make up Cassini in their varied scientific interests and to really help uh, promote the mission. Also to try and maximize the scientific return within, of course, the budget and the other constraints on the project, schedule and the fuel available and so on. Talk about a juggling job. That's, that's, that's quite a, a good challenge. That's a good analogy. Good analogy, Matt. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the science. You said we, we can't really let this uh, uh, checkup on the mission go by without talking about MIMAS, which now Emily, I think, tells me, uh, Emily Lakdawalla says MIMAS, but I'm going to go with the project scientist who calls it MIMAS. What's new on this funny little moon? Well, MIMAS, which we thought was just this kind of small, dead, cratered world, turns out to be very exciting. We had a close flyby recently and got a very detailed temperature map and found out that uh, MIMAS has a hot side and a cold side, looking very different from what we expected. Uh, the warmest point isn't where the subsolar or the, the, the sun is shining, but instead has these two very different sides. And there's this huge crater Herschel. In fact, Mimas kind of looks like the Death Star yes, for yes. the Star Wars fans. And, and maybe this crater Herschel has something to do with the difference in temperature between the hot side and the cold side. And, or maybe it has something to do with the fact that the cold side is facing forward in Mimas's orbit as it goes around Saturn. It's a very interesting puzzle and something we're looking forward to trying to explain. We're going to jump over to another moon, and that's Enceladus, which we've talked about many times and, of course, is, remains one of the great mysteries of the Saturnian system. But one of the things that I read recently that's so interesting is that uh, if it weren't for Enceladus, an entire ring of Saturn probably wouldn't be there? That's right. Enceladus has uh, jets of icy material, uh, plumes of material shooting out from the South Pole, and those tiny ice particles go on to create this huge ring called the E-ring. Enceladus is embedded in the ring, and the E-ring spreads throughout the Saturn system. And if you turn off those jets, then the E-ring will no longer have a source. They're tiny particles, and over time, the E-ring would disappear. Now, what else are we learning about? Well, they're called tiger stripes, and there's this great image, which I think we may have referred to on an earlier uh, episode of the show, where we're learning more about these, these plumes, these mysterious water jets. Right. We're now up to maybe as many as 30 different individual jets coming out of the tiger stripe region. 
and we got a very close thermal map of one of these tire stripes and we're seeing temperatures now hotter than ever, maybe up to 200 Kelvin. And also it looks like some of the jets may increase and decrease in intensity. So we're seeing hmm. variability within these jets, which is also very interesting. It seems like every time we fly close to Enceladus, and that's one of our key targets in the Solstice mission, we learn something more about this process going on at the South Pole. Are we any closer to f knowing how it is that a moon that's supposed to be too small for this kind of activity is, is obviously so active? We're, st we're still puzzling away on why Enceladus is so active. We don't have an answer. It's a very small moon. It doesn't have much in the way of tidal forces stressing it to keep it warm inside. So it's another one of the many puzzles that Cassini is hoping to address in the Solstice mission. Why is Mimas active, or why is Enceladus active, rather, yeah. when Mimas is not? And Mimas is closer to Saturn, would have greater tidal forcing if that's the mechanism. So what's different about Enceladus? Why is it active? And many of the other moons are not. No question, though, I guess, uh, that there's an awful lot of water hiding inside that moon. Right. Water on Enceladus, liquid water. And Enceladus essentially is allowing us to sample the interior by providing it for free as mm. we fly through the plume. So we have a chance to learn about the processes going on inside from these free samples coming out to us <laughs> on the outside. Which you fly right through. Oh, yes. Uh, that's yes, just yeah. incredible. And I want to come back a little bit later to what might be the end of Cassini many years down the line and flying through some other things a little more dangerously. That's just a little tease there. But let's go to the planet itself. Uh, one of the stories that I saw uh, just very recently, just in the last few weeks, was uh, uh, lightning, actual images of lightning on the planet. Right. For the very first time, Cassini is seeing lightning on Saturn. And it turns out what it took is approaching equinox. That's the time when the sun is shining edge on to the rings, and the rings become very dark. It turns out that the reflected sunlight from the rings was actually lighting up the night side of Saturn and making it very difficult to detect lightning. So as we approached equinox and the rings got very dark, that was the chance to look for lightning. And of course, Saturn has to cooperate as well. We need to have a nice big storm to generate the lightning. These storms appear every once in a while. When they do appear, they last several months. And lo and behold, we had this storm that appeared, generated lightning as well as uh, the static that you might hear on your AM radio and lightning mm. flashes. Uh, we saw essentially super bolts of lightning in the atmosphere of Saturn. Cassini project scientist Linda Spilker will share more news from Saturn in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. 
Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Try to imagine Galileo's reaction if he learned what we now know about Saturn. Much of that knowledge has come from the Cassini-Huygens mission that has been orbiting the ring planet for six years. Linda Spilker has just become the Cassini project scientist, but she has been giving us regular mission updates for years. Linda was talking just before the break about the recent confirmation of lightning in the great storms that circle the planet. Scientists, you and others had expected to find this this lightning. I mean, you, it fit theory, didn't it? Right. We expected to see the lightning. We just felt really good to finally be able to see the lightning and also hear the effects of it uh, coming from the other instruments on Cassini. All right, interestingly, in a related story, and one which we may be telling publicly for the first time here, you brought in some documentation of uh, interaction you had with uh, an amateur, actually I guess several amateur astronomers, who are playing an important part, as they do all over the galaxy, in observing Saturn. Right, right. I got an image from an uh, amateur astronomer, and he said, look, there's this really interesting storm on Saturn. It was in Storm Alley, about 40 degrees south. Storm Alley. Storm Alley is what we call it because most of the storms we see tend to show up in that particular region. And I asked him, do you mind if I circulate this picture that you sent me to the Cassini scientists? And so he agreed that would be great. And and I circulated it. And so that allowed the scientists to go back in and check their data. You know, we plan these sequences six months or even a year in advance. And so the odds of us actually looking at that region and catching the storm were small, Mm. but it was still worth a look. And so the composite infrared spectrometer team took a a look for it, and lo and behold, turns out we were looking with Sears for several hours at exactly the right latitude, and the storm happened to move nicely through the field of view, and so we got uh, spectra, evidence that there's upwelling of material in a storm, very similar to a, a storm you would see on the Earth, and so it was a, a, the storm chasers, both the amateurs and Cassini, were able to put this story together. And it's a very nice one. And there is actually an image of the storm in, uh, that I'm sure at some point will be published on the website, uh, picked out by Cassini. I still find it rather incredible that amateurs, we don't know what kind of instrument they had or have, uh, were able to pick out this detail on the surface of this planet. Yeah, it's really amazing the sharpness of the, some of the images that the amateurs produce. And and since this storm has been active on Saturn, it's sort of been brighter and then has sort of waned but has come back again recently that uh, I think some amateurs are looking pretty much every night to see if the storm is still there on Saturn. And they're, they're keeping me updated as well. So you're in regular contact with, with folks like this? Yeah, yeah. I'm on, the, I'm on their email list and get to see their pictures as they come back. We have enough time left to talk about the future. We'll come back to this solstice mission. And uh, there was a great piece that just came out last week in the uh, New York Times where you had steered uh, the Times reporter to some of your mission planners. And they talk about the complexity particularly with a spacecraft that is running out of fuel because, my God, you didn't know you'd be doing this for so many years, and how they're going to be able to extend your ability to gather science for maybe seven more years. Right. The, the nice thing about the Saturn system is we, has, we have Titan, and Titan is a large moon around Saturn that saves us a tremendous amount of rocket fuel by allowing us to fly close to this body and use Titan's gravity 
to shape our orbit, the, the size and shape, the inclination, and so on. And so it allows us to stretch out the mission. And we had some very clever tour designers, some navigators, help us plan what we would do with Cassini to extend its lifetime with the goal of reaching the summer solstice on Saturn. Talk about the potential end of this mission, which is discussed in this article. And it's not a sure thing yet, I guess, but is pretty exciting if you pull it off. Right. There are a number of options for how to end the mission. The main thing we want to do is make sure that when Cassini runs out of fuel, we don't run into Enceladus, which we now know have these these jets and, and a liquid water reservoir, or Titan, another moon with an atmosphere and potentially a liquid water ocean. So we have several options. We could send Cassini out of the system so it doesn't come back to impact uh, in these two moons, Enceladus and Titan. We could impact a moon like, say, Mimas, although Mimas has gotten much more interesting now. We could impact Mimas. And even more exciting is we could take Cassini and actually dive between the innermost ring, the D-ring, and the top of Saturn's atmosphere and essentially end up with a brand new mission. Uh, We could get up to 22 orbits in this configuration, flying just swooping in so close to Saturn to measure its gravity field and its magnetic field. And we can also get a handle on the mass of the B-ring. We haven't been able to probe that ring with stellar occultations. It's too thick. And the mass of the B-ring is the key to its age. Hmm. If the B-ring is very massive, it could have formed at the same time as Saturn did and be as old as Saturn itself. Uh, If it's less massive, it may not be quite as old. So maybe you have an old ancient ring, the B-ring, and then perhaps much younger rings in the C-ring and A-ring. But just a chance to dive in that close to the planet, imagine the pictures of the planet in the rings, to do in situ sampling of what we know is a radiation belt in that region. It'll be, a, like I say, a brand new mission for Cassini if we select that option for our end of mission. So much to look forward to in this extended, extended mission, the Solstice mission. You'll also continue to return beautiful images, many of which we'd refer to on this program and at planetary.org. And, of course, we'll have links to some of what we've talked about at planetary.org slash radio. But I also hear that you have a fan of uh, the mission and some of those images uh, living in the White House. Right, right. Uh, It's very... We think it's very likely that perhaps even President Obama is interested in Cassini and and might have one of our Cassini images uh, right there with him in the White House. Pointing out uh, things to his daughters, no doubt. Linda, as always, a pleasure. I look forward to our our next uh, update on the mission uh, sometime later this year. Thank you very much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Linda Spilker, who we've always known her as the deputy project scientist, but now she is the project scientist for the Cassini mission Six years and counting at uh, Saturn and many more to come thanks to the approval of the Solstice mission that will take us out to possibly 2017 with a healthy spacecraft, right? Right, absolutely. Everything's go. And we'll be go for a visit with Bruce Betts. This week's edition of What's Up is just moments away. Bruce Betts is back on the Skype connection, a far cry from the time we had uh, live last week for Planetary Radio Live, but still good to talk to you again. Welcome back. 
Thank you, Matt. That was fun last week. Yeah, wasn't it? We had a good time. I hope that people are listening to the long version, the uncut version, because there was so much more that we did, like all the uh, questions that you asked of people in the audience, the uh, the quiz that was done live and in person. No, you're right. That was good. Are you also going to release an unplugged version? <laughs> I think we should. Uh, you know, my brother playing the guitar, that was unplugged. I, that may be as close as we get now that I think of it. So what's up? Still got some groovy planets there in the evening sky. Can check out Venus, super bright over in the west. After sunset in the early evening, look higher overhead in the south. You'll see Mars now moving into Leo, looking reddish. And uh, keep going farther along that line, and you'll find Saturn uh, hanging out looking kind of yellowish. And pre-dawn sky dominated by bright Jupiter in the east in the pre-dawn. I was looking up in the sky last couple nights thinking, you know, I should share a little constellation tip. Easy way to identify a star. Most people can find the Big Dipper, Ursa Major. And if you take that handle that curves and you keep curving, if you keep going on that arc, you will come to a really bright star. And that really bright star is Arc Taurus. Uh, there you go. <laughs> cool, very huh? good. And if you keep following that arc, by the way, you can find... Uh, speak of the bright star in Virgo. I like these. You should you should do more of these. I should. I shall. It will be glorious. In the meantime, let's go on to this week in space history. A couple of uh, significant launches in 1963, the last launch of the Mercury program, Faith 7. And 10 years later, 1973, Skylab was launched. We move on to Random that went beyond the Al Jolson thing. I was trying. I was trying to take it to a new depth, a new level. Our solar system revolves around the center of our galaxy, that would be the Milky Way, about once every 250 million years. You actually remember the last time we were in this position, don't you? <laughs> you mean this part of our orbit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the show was brand new then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed it was. We still get fan mail from some uh, trilobites. <laughs> Darn, I should have a comeback. I do enjoy the trilobites, though. They they were huge. It's too bad they've... Um, I, we don't get as much anymore, do we? No, not so much. On to the trivia contest. Enceladus is uh, a significant source of ring particles for what Saturnian ring? What's the answer, Matt? It's the E-ring, or uh, I don't know where that is in any of the uh, the nice mnemonics that we got, but it's uh, definitely the E-ring that uh, should be uh, thanking its mom uh, for uh, Mother's Day just passed, uh, the, that mom being Enceladus. Indeed. Did we learn anything else interesting about Enceladus? Yeah, it was uh, Philip Espy uh, let us know that, uh, I guess he wasn't a mom, he was actually a giant and kind of a nasty giant. He Wait, lives. Are you referring to the listener or to Enceladus? No, I'm sorry. Uh, Enceladus, uh, the uh, the Greek mythological giant, who uh, lives underneath the Italian volcano Mount Etna and is responsible for its tremors and fiery eruptions. Philip Philippe wrote, but I should uh, say that it was Randall Randall Sitton of Houston, Texas, a uh, charter member of the uh, Planetary Society. He always reminds us it's been about. Um, Gosh, what, a year and a half, I think, since uh, Randall last won the contest. Maybe longer than that. But uh, congratulations, Randall. We're going to send you out a T-shirt. Congratulations. All right, let's go on to our next contest. What was the largest telescope in the world in 1940? 
the largest optical telescope in the world in 1940. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter. And what are they competing for this week, Matt? This is uh, pretty cool. The uh, folks who publish Paul Davies' book, uh, The Eerie Silence, Reviewing Our Search for Alien Intelligence, the book that we talked to uh, Paul Davies about a couple of weeks ago and I raved about, uh, they've given us a nice hardcover copy of this book. And so that will go to our winner who gets us an answer correct answer and is chosen by random.org by 2 p.m. on Monday, May 17. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about pause. That, that'd be P-A-W-S in case there's a question. Thank you and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here, this, this pause that refreshes that we call What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible in part by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation. Keep looking up. <laughs>